0: I say, hello, all my relatives. The name the spirits call me by is Flaming Horsewoman. I am an Anishinaabe woman of the Bear Clan. My people come from the Turtle Mountain Band of Ojibwa or Chippewa. I live in the Valley of the Flowers. My name is Jill Mackin, and I grew up on the Rocky Mountain Front in that community that Pierce Mullen just talked about with the lovely cemetery, Shoto. I wanted to speak to you a little bit in our Ojibwa language today because it's important to use our language. We are in a time where we're desperately holding on to our language. I also wanted to tell you a bit about where I'm from and who my people are so that you might know the place from which I speak. In addition to being a doctoral candidate at Montana State University, a position that was hard earned with five children in tow, um, I am also a Bradley Fellow here at the Montana Historical Society. I just really count being a Bradley Fellow as a tremendous blessing to me because it's not only helped. Uh, fund my research, it's given me access, and also put me in relationship with a tremendous community of scholars, the librarians at the Montana Historical Society, who, from my point of view, are clearly committed to seeing the stories of Montana presented in a robust and polished form. So I say a big miigwech, a big miigwech thank you to the staff of MHS. My talk today is entitled, Landless Indians Living Off the Land, and Reservation Farm Programs. My area of specialty is indigenous food systems. I've just commenced in earnest my, my dissertation research looking at changing foodways on the northern plains in the time period 1780 to 1920. To give you a sense of the context of the larger story of my research, I want to give you a series of snapshots of changing foodways leading up to the World War I era. So first a note about the archives. Discovering the story of indigenous food in the past means reaching for the voices of native women in the past. Finding the native women's voice is a slow and tedious job. There are a few documents that directly reveal Native women's stories. I'm currently working with oral histories done in the 1970s and 1990s. Government documents from 1800 forward and missionary and explorer's journals, newspapers, photos, and so on. As I reach to round out my work, I am also interviewing my own people, spending time on the land and in ceremony. With few direct glimpses into the lives of Native women, the primary holders of foodways knowledge, the work of constructing the past, is that of patching together a quilt from very small pieces of fabric. Oral histories are some of the most direct material we have when it comes to Native women. Mabel Pepion Salloway, her own story, Recorded from the nineteen seventy-seven Depuyor Centennial and collected in the Metis Cultural Recovery Trust at the Historical Society, is a precious source of information and a native voice from the past, relaying what it felt like to live in to live life in her world. She not only shares on her lifetime, but also gives us a view of the life of her mother. Louise Fast Buffalo Horse, or roughly the period from the 1860s through the current era. era. Her mother was Blackfeet and married to a man named George Davis from Leavenworth, Kansas. He was a sheep rancher who also ran the Q&L Saloon in Dupuyer in the 1880s, but he decided to go back to Kansas. Louise wanted to stay in Blackfeet country with her people. So she took the she- he took the sheep and their youngest, a two-year-old son, and returned to Kansas. Many mixed heritage couples faced this issue when men who came west to make a go of it decided to return home. Davis died on the way back to Kansas. His parents buried him and raised the son. After her father left, Mabel moved with her mother to Hart Butte to live with her grandparents and Indian relatives. Eventually her mother remarried and they moved back to Birch Creek. Mabel grew up in an ethnically mixed world as reflected in both her community and her family. Mabel was of Euro-American and Blackfeet parentage. Her first husband was Blackfeet. Her second husband was of Ojibwe Cree, Métis heritage. Mabel's knowledge of changing foodways gives insight into both the story of survival under the reservation system and as landless Indians. Quote, My mother used to tell me when they first signed the treaty. They told them if they would go to the reservations and settle, they would take care of them. They lived good. They roamed all over the plains. When they got tired, They moved to another place. They had a lot of buffalo. They lived good, you know. Until they made them go on these reservations, and then they promised they would take care of them and give them everything, homes and all they needed. Then they used to ration them. All they allowed them was so many pounds of beef. There was no more buffalo then, and flour to each member. If there were two of you, you didn't get much. Anyone with children, well, they got a bit more. They used to get so many pounds of meat and flour once a week, every Saturday, and you had to live on that for a week. To think of it today, I wondered, how did they ever get by?" End quote. The people lived good was the collective memory Mabel shared. The bison culture people moved through the seasons in a rhythm of work and exchange. Some tribes maintained gardens and returned to them after the summer hunt. Others, like the Mandan, lived a sedentary agricultural life and traded to round out their diet. Places like the Cypress Hills in the province of Saskatchewan today were significant for wintering camps. There, in the spring, the tender shoots of bunch grass emerge early and they would draw the buffalo in, breaking the hungry season for both the bison and the people. A diversity of roots, berries, greens, and medicinal plants were gathered as the people moved through changing habitats. As Mabel flashes back on how it felt for her mother to live in the last half of the 19th century, let me flash forward to the close of the century, to where things were heading. Here we have examples of the boosterism that was going on, even in a small town paper like the Depuyer Acantha. in 1894. The nation was being quickly built. The West was on its way to being a robust farming and ranching empire. In 1893, Frederick Jackson Turner, at a presentation to the World's Fair, declared the frontier closed. Never again would such gifts of free land offer themselves. The end of the frontier was measured by achieving a population density of two people per square mile. In reference to the data gathered by the 1890 census, Turner acknowledged an arrival. Americans have occupied the land. In turn, the land lent competency to the newcomers and their building, their budding nation. In that, economic power secured political power. The year 1890 also marked a turning point in the new nation's control of those who previously occupied the land at their will. The killing of Sitting Bull at Wounded Knee was remembered as a decisive moment in Indian resistance, a culmination of the effort to remove Native Americans from the land, to terminate their mobility and way of life. The Buffalo Commons of the Northwestern Plains had been sanctuary to Sitting Bull many other Native bands, and Mabel's people, the Blackfeet, and Ojibwe Cree-Matee. Soon this country would be known as the Golden Triangle for its production of wheat and barley. Treaties stipulated that Native peoples should be made self-sufficient in the same way by leading a sedentary lifestyle on the reservation. This wasn't an encouragement, it was an order. The treaties outlined a planned process of conquering. In mid-October of 1855, Blackfoot Treaty Commissioner Isaac I. Stevens, Governor of Washington Territory and ex officio, its Superintendent of Indian Affairs, assembled the Blackfoot Peace Council just below the confluence of the Judith and the Missouri Rivers. The treaty acknowledged the Buffalo Commons, a shared hunting grounds of the Three Forks, Musselshell, and Upper Yellowstone country, but at the same time called for a new vision of reservation life, one focused on assimilation of indigenous peoples into the new dominant economy. In his preamble to the treaty, Stephen set out the government's vision for the future. Quote, we want you in your country on farms. We want you to have cattle and raise crops. You know the buffalo will not continue forever. Get farms and cattle in time," End quote. As William Farr of University of Montana points out, the Buffalo Commons was acknowledged and, and legal only, quote, long enough to accomplish the tribal passage from a hunting and foraging culture to one of civilization and agriculture. Indeed, the treaty did include fiscal provisions for establishing a reservation farm project. In the early decades following the treaty, delivery of annuities, or commodity foods, and farm projects were plagued with problems. These programs suffered from a lack of physical infrastructure and governmental leadership. As with delivering annuities, the delivering of farm implements and weeds and seeds were plagued by transportation problems. In the early days of the Blackfeet Farm, deliveries had to come by steamship up the Missouri River or as close as it could get to Benton, given the the challenges of ice flow and problems owing to low water. Then supplies were delivered overland to Sun River. Federal agents were sent out from the east to manage Indian affairs. The agents moved through a revolving door. Some were compassionate. Most were lacking entirely in knowledge of climate, seasons, and soil, and few stayed longer than one year. Farm managers were hired to address the lack of knowledge. However, as the gold rush picked up, agents had a great problem with retaining farm managers and learned that they had to pay them dearly to be competitive with the draw to the mines. While infrastructure and staffing did not keep pace with the policy of teaching native people to farm in the white man's way, new (laughs) policies created new barriers. The downsizing of the Blackfeet Reservation eventually did away with the Sun River Farm Project altogether. The Dawes Act of 1887 allotted remaining reservation lands, dividing and privatizing the land into small plots that impaired tribal farming endeavors. Mabel remembers the Indian agent coming around to teach Blackfeet how to raise gardens. Some were quite successful, but then the agent disappeared, and somehow the gardens did too. Native farming enterprises were created nationwide. Crow Fair started in 1904 when the Bureau of Indian Affairs agent and Crow leaders agreed that a country fair format would help induce the Crows to become self-supporting farmers and allow the people to showcase aspects of Crow culture. The federal policy on Indians was the same nationwide, assimilation through agriculture, whether on Navajo, in the Nevada Desert, or on the Columbia River Plateau. By 1915, there was this word from senators on the Committee of Indian Affairs following their visit to the Blackfeet Reservation, quote, Senator Lane's judgment is that the Blackfeet Indians are not successful farmers, and that money spent in the maintenance of an experimental farm is wasted, as it serves no purpose, finding people poverty-stricken and on the verge of starvation, the Senator was appalled that the Indian agent was not doing something more to address the inhumane conditions the people were living in. Two impediments prevented the Blackfeet from successfully supplementing meager rations and failed farm operations with their own traditional foodways. One was the fence built around the reservation Mabel and her family lived next to that fence and the gate that allowed individuals with a pass to cross at Birch Creek to go toward Dupuyer and beyond. Mabel recalls the fence being built around 1904 or five. The fence not only kept Blackfeet in, but also restricted hunting and travel to places on the seasonal round where the women may have tended wild plots of roots, berries, and medicines. The second, and more significant impediment to Blackfeet foodways was the 1896 land session of the area that 15 years later became the Glacier National Park. Loss of the Seated Strip, as it has become known, greatly reduced access to the animal and plant nations that had traditionally sustained the people. Mabel's analysis aligns with that of Senator Lane's, quote, seemed like they were trying to get rid of the Indians, starve them to death. There is no agency now, but on Badger Creek, just about a half a mile south of there, there was a little hill on the way, and there was nothing but dead people. They didn't bury them. They had some in rawhides just tied up, and some in canvas, some in just rough boxes. They didn't bury them. They just laid them all along there." End quote. Mabel's life was liminal in the sense that she knew two native worlds, one assigned to a reservation and one landless. She was Blackfeet. Her husband was, her husband was Blackfeet and her husband, Chester Pepion died. When he died, she married into the Salloway family, landless Indians of Cree, Ojibwa, Métis descent. How the landless Indians became landless is a complicated affair. The landless Indians of Montana come from three primary groups. The Cree, the Ojibwa or Chippewa, and the Metis, those of mixed heritage, native, and European. These groups were intermar- intermarried in close alliance with the Assiniboine and the Grovant people. All are members of a larger allied group called the nihia Confederacy the subject of an excellent presentation by Dr. Nicholas Vrooman at this conference in 2014. This allied group emerged from the trading center of Pembina in the Red River Valley, a mixed heritage confederacy formed through intertribal cooperation and fusion. Susan Chirac, in her 1974 pioneering study, described this arrival. Quote, Throughout much of the 18th and 19th centuries, these populations jointly occupied a large area of territory in the northeastern plains, and in varied ways and degrees, they intermarried and collaborated in a range of activities, from combat to trade to subsistence and ceremony. Segments of these populations also lived together, eventually forming composite, composite residence groups in which new ethnic identities developed over time, quote. This was all too complicated for the federal government's plan, which sought to sort people as they were removed from the land, putting them on reservations by tribe of origin. In the confusion over who these people were, they were lumped in the public and governmental imagination into one category called Cree, or Canadian Cree, Time and time again, the people were rounded up by the ca- cavalry regiments from Fort Assiniboine and taken to the border, given a stern warning to never come back. In time, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police would do the same. The people's mobile lifeways further complicated the plan of, s- of sorting people to reservations. The people's seasonal round had straddled both sides of the 49th parallel before it was a national boundary line. Under these conditions, the people sought security. This had a tremendous fragmenting effect on their settlement patterns. They scattered to the four winds. Some lived in remote enclaves, hiding out from future roundups, in places like the South Fork of the Teton, Depuyer, Augusta, Willow Creek, Haystack Butte, Bean Lake, and the Judith Basin. Others became urban Indians settling down in squatter camps around the cities of Helena, Butte, and Great Falls. Food ways were impacted by their inability to move about and the circumstances that defined their means of making a living. Some in the mountains were woodcutters. Often they ran a trap line and sold animal skins. The urban Indians had fewer resources to live their old ways. Instead, they ate from the city dumps or sold bison horn trinkets to make a little cash. For Mabel, who lived in one of the remote landless enclaves where some squatted on forest service lands and others homesteaded, many aspects of traditional foodways remained. As she and the other voices in the Métis Cultural Recovery Trust relay, many traditional foodways maintained the people as they cobbled together their lives in precarity. In broad terms, they hunted elk, deer, rabbit, bear, and moose, fished, gathered sarvice berries and chokecherries and Indian potatoes, also known as Jerusalem artichokes. They continued to make pemmican and berry soup. While some landless Indians found harbor and means of subsistence, Others did not fare as well. Little Bear's band was dramatically caught up in the government process of ethnic cleansing and living on the edges of Montana cities. The Little Bear and Rocky Boy bands had relatives on the Blackfeet Reservation with traditional wintering camps at Babb and Hart Butte. In June of 1912, the U.S. government's plans were for the landless bands to be permanently placed on the Blackfeet Reservation. Well aware of the conditions on the Blackfeet Reservation, the landless resisted co-settlement with the Blackfeet. Chief Little Bear continued to fight mercilessly for a reservation for the landless. In 1913, Chief Little Bear heard the Secretary of the Interior was in town. As the newspaper read, quote, Attended by four tribesmen, Little Bear, the chief of, of a homeless band of Chippewa Indians, stalked into the lobby of the Placer Hotel at Helena the other day and had a conference with the representative of the white father. Here is what he said. God was taking care of us all right until the white man came and took the responsibility off his hands. Last winter our wives and children lived on dogs and the carcasses of frozen horses to keep from starving. The Rocky Boy Reservation was formed in 1916 as a home for two homeless bands of Chippewa Cree led by Chief Little Bear and Chief Rocky Boy. However, there were those who were left out of the deal, followers of a chief called Little Shell. Yet scattered across the state, they continue today to fight for federal status and for land for their people. In conclusion, I want to share this article, which appeared October 26, 1917, in the Glasgow Courier. In reference to the food conservation program that was being instituted nationwide and supported the war effort, the courier announced wheat, sugar, and meat put on the Indian list. I had not heard the term Indian list before, but I found just one reference explaining this term. In vogue in the earliest early 20th century to be put on the Indian li- list means a restriction comparable to Indians not being allowed to purchase liquor. This is a curious comparison which speaks volumes in equating deprivations to Indianness. Like many contradictions in settler attitudes toward native peoples, the media of the day claimed the Indians were too lazy, shiftless, and nomadic to be up to the task of industrious daily labor necessary to sustain their lives. The mixed message was, Indians must be civilized through assimilation policies. And at the same time, Indians are not capable of being civilized. This myth is thoroughly debunked by the success of those native farmers who were landless homesteaders, and those successful in hunting, gardening, and wild harvesting, just as all indigenous people always had.